0: That word this morning can be found in John chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 6 through 8. You can find that on page 903 in the Pew Bible. John 17 verses 6 through 8. We are back to the high priestly prayer. We are back to the holy ground that that is the final words of the Christ before his betrayal, trial, suffering, and death. Final words that are words of prayer. Jesus has been instructing his disciples in chapters 13 through 16. Now he is praying for his disciples. But in praying audibly, out loud, for his disciples, he's continuing to instruct them and love them and comfort them before he leaves them. Leaves to do what? Well, his work. Two weeks ago, before I left for rest, we talked about work. Verse 4, Christ has accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do. And in accomplishing that work, Jesus glorified God. Remember, that's what this whole prayer is about. That's what the whole of reality is about. And that is what the whole of your life is meant to be about, the glory of God. We considered 1 Corinthians 10, 31, one of the most profound and for me, one of the most perplexing verses of the Bible. So whether you eat or drink the smallest of things or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How's that going for you? How did that go for me over vacation? If you could ask my wife, I would prefer that you did not. But as I was sitting Thursday on Beach Mountain, uh, Beach Mountain is one of our, our favorite spots in North Carolina. It's, it's the highest town in the eastern United States. And as I was sitting out, uh, looking over the surrounding mountains, looking back over our trip, I had to conclude that in our ten years here at Woodside, it was our worst vacation. Which is saying something, considering we named our previous vacation in January the Vomit Vacation. We had five vomiting daughters, two hospitals, one ambulance ride. Uh, listen, this, this one was worse many are the afflictions of the righteous. I was feeling that in the course of some things going on. I was greatly helped by Peter's sermon in the midst of afflictions. And then I was both comforted and rebuked by Pastor Mike's exposition of the idea of sacrificing personal rights for the glory of God and the salvation of others. It was very helpful. You all were well fed while I was away. But Why was the trip so terrible? There's reasons that I'm not going to get into. But for me, the most concerning thing was my response to the goings on. How quickly I respond to affliction with doubt and discouragement, frustration and fear, anger and annoyance. I've quickly forgot that sacrificing of self for the glory of God and the salvation of others. In the midst of some of the things, my wife was like, go to the gym. She sent me to the gym and I got to just lift heavy things. And work out and, and pray during all those things. It was very helpful. My wife is wise and loving and kind. What about you? Many are the afflictions of the righteous. How do you respond to those many afflictions? And why do so many of us tend to respond so poorly so often? I'm increasingly convinced that Martin Lloyd-Jones has hit the nail on the head. I have used this before but it's in these verses that we're looking at today that he writes and makes this claim. And it's this idea that it's, it's, it's our very concept of a Christian, of what a Christian is, that is wrong. He argues that most of our troubles actually arise from this basic fact. And so we need to start over by contemplating again what a Christian really is. How the Bible describes a Christian, the, the, the place, the position that we're in, the dignity that we're given, the glory, the, the special relationship that we have to God as father. I'm convinced increasingly that he is correct. And so he keeps stressing this point. He says the more he reads the Bible, the more convinced he is, is that the trouble with most of us is that we have never truly realized what it really is to be a Christian. So maybe it's it's our whole conception of a Christian and what the Christian life is meant to be that is defective and and why we can so easily miss so many blessings of the Christian life. Why we are often so troubled and perplexed and confused and why we often react the way that we do to so many of the things that happen to us in this life and in this world. If we could just understand what a Christian really is. The privilege, the position, the blessing, the possibilities uh, above everything, the, the future and eternity and destiny of those in Christ, he says, our entire outlook would be completely changed. I don't know about you, but I want my entire outlook completely changed and thus my response to affliction completely changed. And so I need a better understanding of what a Christian really is and what I really am in Christ And that's exactly what our passage is about. Christ has been praying for himself in verses 1 through 5. We spent four or five weeks on those verses. Now he begins praying for his people. Next week will be verse 9. I want you to look at verse 9, and I want you to note that there is a specific people that Christ is praying for. And a specific people that Christ is not praying for. And there is nothing that you should want more than for Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, than for Him to be praying for you, for Him to take an interest in you, to love you and to seek your good. And He does that only for this people. Well, who are they? What is it that characterizes God's people? What is a Christian really? We're going to look at four things in our passage, four things to help us understand and appreciate who we are in Christ And then what that means for you and for your life and for your afflictions and for your everything. Point number one, we're going to start with the main thing. I want to unpack and explain what this means. I will in a moment. We're going to see first and foremost that God's people are given by God. And I'll explain what that means and how that's first and foundational. Then number two, we'll see that God's people know God. Point three, God's people are not of this world. And then point four, we'll see that God's people keep God. God's word. What is a Christian? Who are we really in Christ? Well, let's read and see. I'll be reading John chapter 17. I'm going to start in verse 1 just to get us into our text. I'll read through verses 6 through 8. We'll spend most of our time in verse 6. Uh, pay attention because this is what God himself wants to say to you today. John 17, 1. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. If you would bow with me, let's ask for God to help us in this time. Father, we are very thankful for your word. We are very thankful that you are kind to us in speaking to us. In revealing yourself to us through these living and active words. So Father, now we ask that you would, by your spirit, work through these words, to comfort and encourage your saints. Father, teach us, please, and, and equip us. Fill our minds with your truth. Sanctify us with that truth. Help us to, to know Christ and, and know what it really means to be His and what that means for our lives. Father, we increasingly want our, our experience of this life to match our profession of, of Christ and, and of grace and of the glory that we have in Him. Father, we know that that only happens as You do Your work in us by Your Spirit through Your Word. So, Father, please do that now. Uh, Please help me. Father, please help me to be clear. Uh, Please help me to proclaim Jesus Christ. Father, please help the hearing of Your Word. Father, encourage Your people. Father, for anyone who, who is in here and who does not know You, who is not part of Your people, who is very much part of this world, Father, would You save them? Would You show them their sin? And show them the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the life that is to be found only in Jesus Christ. Father, do the things now in this time that we cannot do for ourselves, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Point number one, God's people are given by God. And this is arguably the, the most important point, yet probably the least understood of these four. So I'm starting with this, even though it comes second in our text. And we're going to spend most of our time with this because I think that maybe we don't really know this. Review first. Remember, there are three parts to this longest prayer that we have of Christ. This is the longest prayer in the New Testament. So it's important. Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. He prays for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And then he prays more specifically for us, the church, in verses 20 through 26. We're now beginning that second part, this prayer for his disciples. Verse 5, he said, glorify me, Now, verse 6, he starts talking about the people. Now, first his disciples, but I want you to understand as we begin this section that that much of this second part of the prayer very much applies to us as well. So surely, for example, when Jesus prays in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth." That that can't apply only to the disciples, but to all God's people. So yes, these, these second and third parts of the prayer are distinct, but... There's a lot of overlap as well. Much of what applies to the disciples uh, here applies to us. And so we're going to take our verses today, largely verse 6, as descriptors of God's people in general. Now look at our text. When we think prayer, we still tend to think exclusively petition, asking. But notice that in this prayer for his disciples, Jesus doesn't specifically ask anything until the middle of verse 11. In the middle of verse 11, he will finally say, keep them. But first, in verses 6 through 10, Jesus begins by rehearsing his own ministry, by reminding his disciples of who he is and what he has done, as well as who they are and what he has done for them. The praying for them really begins in verse 11, but this is first And foundational, these are the grounds or the reasons why he is praying for his people, uh, what he is praying for his people. And today we're focusing on who those people are that he's praying for. So look at verse nine one more time. This is we're going to give this a whole week next week. In verse nine, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So, again, I want the God-man, perfect in both love and power, to be praying for me and seeking my good. I want to learn the identity of those for whom he prays, and I want to learn to rest and rejoice in that identity. And it starts with his description of this people in verse 9 as those whom you have given me. And five times in this part of the prayer, Jesus talks about believers As those whom you gave me. We just read nine. Look at verse six again. There he says the people whom you gave me. Keep reading verse six. He says it again. Yours they were and you gave them to me. Now look down at the middle of verse 11. In verse 11 he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me. The grammar of that in the English is a little bit confusing. The That which is given there is not the name, but it's the them. It's the people that God will keep in his name. Same thing in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. That's five times in this second part of the prayer. And if you add verse 2, look up at verse 2. In verse 2, he has said, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So that's part one of the prayer. Now look at verse 24. Here's part three of the prayer. Last one. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's seven times in this one chapter, this one prayer. Jesus talks about us as Christians, as the church, as those whom God has given. Remember, repetition reveals relevance. When Jesus repeats something, you know it's important. And when Jesus repeats something seven times in a short space of time, it's really important. We've already seen that the theme of this whole prayer is glory. The first thing that Christ prays for is glory. So if you take that and then you take this new point, you could argue that the theme of this prayer is the glory of God in the giving of a people. And we know that give is one of John's favorite verbs. Again and again, he talks about God as the one who gives. For God so loved the world that he gave. Right? Love gives. Grace gives. The giving of God is grace. John 1.14, and the word Jesus became grace flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth verse 17 grace and truth came through jesus christ and grace gives and grace is what you need grace is what can change everything change your whole life and change your response to those many afflictions But, like our failure to truly understand what a Christian really is, I think we often fail to truly understand what grace really is. How big and comprehensive and all-consuming and life-saving and life-transforming and eternity-securing and joy-bringing and good God's grace really is. And it all begins with understanding that grace gives. Grace gives much. Yes, many afflictions, but much more grace. Here, though, we're focusing specifically on the fact that grace gives us. Grace gives you. God the Father gives to God the Son a people. Listen, that is fundamentally what a Christian is. A Christian is one who has been given by God the Father to Jesus Christ the Son. Flip back to John chapter 6. This is just repetition. Remember how often Jesus repeats this. John chapter 6, this is the bread of life discourse. Jesus is life. That's one of John's big themes. Apart from Christ, no life. Christ, life. Let me read for you verses 37 through 40 from John chapter 6. Note the giving. John six thirty-seven. Jesus says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives will come. I'm going to focus on that from 17.9 next week. But I want you to take comfort first in verse 39 that Christ will lose nothing of all that God has given him. That's you. If you are in Christ, that's you. And that's assurance. That's a truth that you need to add to your understanding of your identity, of of, of who you are. If you are a Christian, you are one who has first and foremost been given by God the Father to God the Son. Why is that so important and such a comfort? Well, first, we need to understand and appreciate why the Father gave the Son a people. Well, let's trace the gives. Go back to John 17. We're in verse 6, and in verse 6 we see that the Father gave the Son a people. Now look at verse 4 again. This is what we saw last time. In verse 4 we see that the Father gave the Son a work to do. What's the work? Look at verse 2, 6, 4, 2. To give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the father gave the son a work to do, which was to give eternal life to the people whom he had given to him. And that means a number of things. Uh, First off, it means that before this work, we need to be clear here. Before this work, you did not have eternal life. And to not have life is to necessarily have death. Romans six twenty three for the wages of sin is death. And all have sinned. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. We have all failed to keep God's law. We all know deep down within us that there is something wrong, that we have not lived up to our own standard, much less God's perfect and holy standard. Now listen, here is the affliction. And here I'm increasingly convinced is the root of much of my problem. I'm not always so convinced that this is, that this was the worst of my afflictions. I'm not always convinced that my sin and my condition in that sin was, was all that bad. And so I struggle to appreciate the great weight of my sin and the great punishment I justly deserved for that sin. And as I do that, I then struggle to appreciate the great grace of what Christ has done to free me. And forgive me entirely from the great weight of that sin. And the great punishment I justly deserved for that sin. Start with sin. We have lost the healthy and biblical practice of meditating on our sin. As a means of driving us deeper into a joyful meditation on Christ and His grace. We are coming to the world in point three and next week, but we have been so infected and influenced by the world that we are increasingly convinced that this life is all that there is. that This is what really matters and that our comfort and ease and success and health in this life are the highest good. And so then when the affliction comes, we are often laid low because these things that we have valued most are now under attack and falling apart, and failing us. But, but what if this was the thing that we valued most? That we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive together in Christ. Wouldn't that then put everything else in perspective? Eternity really can put things in perspective. Christian, do you understand and appreciate what your sin was? and is, and deserved? Do you understand and appreciate the great grace and work that was required to redeem you? I want to get to that point where I never get over God's great love for me. I want to read everything that I face, the good and the bad, the affluence and the affliction through the lens of this gospel. And for anyone in here who's visiting, anyone who's, who's not a Christian, anyone who has no idea what I'm talking about, Pay attention right now for a moment because this is what we most want you to hear. We preach Christ crucified. And Christ crucified is a great two-word summary of the gospel. And the word gospel just means good news. We want you to hear the good news of God's offer in Christ to save you from your sins, the wages of sin is death. You are a sinner. You have rejected God and broken his just and good law and that sin separates you from the God who is life and thus you are dead. Spiritually dead. And the only thing that awaits you upon your physical death, which is coming for all of us, the only thing that awaits you is judgment and hell. The wages of sin is death. But the gospel, but the good news, but the free gift of God, giving gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, this is what sets the Christian faith apart from everything else in its grace. Everything else is saying, here are the things, do these things, be good enough and you'll get in. The gospel is the only one that's saying you're not good enough and you can't get in. And your sin separates you from God. And there's nothing that you can do about it. But God. But Jesus Christ. He offers uh, to us forgiveness and life. Christ himself came to accomplish the work that we could not. uh, Of giving eternal life. And he does it in the most amazing way possible. Jesus comes to take our place. To be our substitute. To take on our sin. And to take on the death that we deserve. And he takes that on for us. And he dies. The wages of sin is death. So that we might live. The free gift is eternal life. If only you would come to him and believe. This whole thing. For the Christian and the non-Christian. It's, it's, it's all entirely about grace. if that still sounds very foreign and strange and doesn't make any sense, again, Pastor Mike's here, I'm here. We would love to talk with you after the service. There's a lot of people around you that would love to talk to you after the service and explain to you this good news. But for all of us, I want us to see the utter graciousness of God. To see that this whole thing is entirely something that is given to us. And that that grace that freely gives, understood, and appreciated makes us glad. Look at verse 13. These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So that's, that's what God is doing in us and for us. Joy. So this whole thing is about. I I, I made a comment about our, our congregational singing before i left and then we went on vacation and we went we tried two different churches baptist churches i'm very discerning i think i am about i'm particular about where we go i didn't hear a single other person singing i only heard my own voice and the music leader's voice in both places and it made me so sad because i so love raising our voices together and praising god through song and so when that's happening i'm not focusing and i'm not worshiping and i'm just getting frustrated and so i got me thinking and singing about thinking about worship Plus, if you think about it it's re- this whole thing that we do here and it's really weird nobody's no one else sings you come into this place and we're singing all these songs for communities why? that's strange the christian faith is the singing faith why is that it's because of verse 13 it's because of the joy because of the joy that is to be found in the Lord. And that joy is facilitated through and communicated through song. I sing because I'm happy, right? the, old, the old song uh, says. Um, joy is what God is doing for us and in us and through us. And, and that's what I want, right? I want Christ's perfect joy, a joy that can face the many afflictions of this difficult life so that I can be 2 Corinthians six ten, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And grace is the only way that happens. The grace that gives us everything. But I've gotten off track. My point here is more narrow than that. It's that grace gives us, the people. A people given by the Father to the Son. And notice this. Notice what Jesus says in the second half of verse 6, because I think this is important. Look at what he says, second half of 6. Yours they were. And you gave them to me. That's pretty neat. Don't, don't miss this. Christ's work was not to make us God's people. I tend to think that's often how we think about this. But we're wrong. We'll hit this more next week. But Jesus says, Yours, Father, they, they were, past tense. And then the Father gives us to the Son, to accomplish His work of giving us eternal life. Look down at the end of verse 24. There in verse 24, Jesus says, Son, speaking to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Well, we just read that language in our scripture reading. We just saw that in Ephesians 1.4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. You see, before you existed, before the world existed, before the word before could make any sense, God chose for himself a people. His they were. We were. And he chose us. Rest of Ephesians 1.4, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's what's required for a relationship with the holy and blameless God. He doesn't lower the standard and let us in if we get a passing grade. No, the standard is perfection. You have to be absolutely perfect. That's why the only hope is Jesus Christ and his perfection for us. So we've messed all that up in our sin. And that's why the Father gives us to the Son. Because we were not fit for him in our sin. Christ's work was to make us Fit to redeem us and restore us and save us and sanctify us so that we could be with him and enjoy him and he enjoy and delight uh, in us. So you, you see how big this could potentially be? I said a few minutes ago, start with sin, but it's not entirely accurate. Start with this. this precedes that: even before your sin, before the foundation of the world, his you were chosen by him entirely by grace, to be his. And then for him to do what was required for you to be with him in light of and in spite of your sin that was to come. So I think Jesus is saying here that we are God's people before we are sinners. And grace upon grace, because we are God's people, God himself comes to solve our sin problem for us that we might be restored to him. And so this is fundamentally what a Christian is. Christians are God's people. Christians are sons and daughters of the living God entirely by the grace of God before the foundation of the world. There's nothing more core to your identity than this. And there is nothing more comforting in your life than this, if you could just remember it. And so this is not a profound application, but I think it's a biblical one. It's, it's, it's realize your identity in Christ. It's be who you are in Christ. Live in light of who you are in light of God's grace. Lloyd-Jones in that chapter goes on to claim that from Acts through Revelation, you could argue there's really only one theme in the New Testament. And that theme is what a Christian is. He says the basic argument of all the epistles is that if only you realized Who and what you really are in Christ you are a child of God chosen by God given by God the Father to God the Son that you may be made like God the Son and enjoy eternal fellowship and communion with God the Father face everything in light of that this is who you are if you are a Christian point number two these three will be much quicker don't worry These are more further explanations and expansions of the first point. Point number two, God's people know God. Look at verse six again. This is the first thing that we see. I have manifested your name to these people whom you have given me. The Greek word manifested there comes from the noun for light, phos. So to manifest is to to illuminate It's to reveal, it's to make clear or known. It's just one eighteen again. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's, that's Jesus, he has made him known. This is why Christ has come. Our sin not only separates us from God, but it blinds us to even seeing God and thus knowing God. The God, 17.3, who we've just seen, knowing, is eternal life. We all know that that life and uh, true happiness is found only in relationship. That's why relational breakdown is the most difficult and painful of things. Because God has designed us, relational beings, He has designed us to find our life and happiness in relationship with Him. And so Christ comes to reveal God, to show us, God, who he is and what he is like, that we may see and know him and find our life in him. Up in verse 4, we saw that in everything that Christ did and said he glorified God. He he revealed the the goodness and the greatness of God. Likewise, here, in everything that Christ did and said he was manifesting God. He was making God God. Known, and since he is the God of glory, in making God known, he was making known his glory, drawing attention to it. He's he's glorifying God and revealing God in all that he does. And so, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Christ. We are very good at creating God in our own image and wanting God to be just a little bit like us, uh, or like us, but just a little bit better. But that's not how it works. Here's where we see who God is. Here is the invisible God made visible, made manifest. For Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. Come that we may see and know and live. And so he has said in 14.9, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so once again, we have here a very bold and controversial claim On the part of Christ. As Jesus, this man, is claiming to be God. And to reveal God. He is saying, if you want to know God, if you want to see God, look at me. No one gets to say things like that. Unless you actually are God. Come in the flesh. And now notice specifically what it is that Christ says that he manifests. Notice that it says he manifests God's name. And some have tried to argue that, that maybe Jesus means some specific name of God. Jesus has been saying, I am, I am, I am, over and over again. So maybe that's the specific name he's manifesting. Or notice again that he opens this prayer in verse 1 saying, Father. And remember, that was new. No one prayed specifically to God as Father. No one before Jesus spoke personally of God as uh, Father. Maybe Father is the name that Jesus is manifesting. And there are a few things more important than your understanding of God as father. J.I. Packer famously argues that you can sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. You can judge how well a person understands the faith, he argues, by how much that person makes of the thought of being God's child and of having God as his Father, So do you know and rest and rejoice in God as your gracious and compassionate heavenly father? And as important as that is, I think even that's probably not specifically what Jesus is talking about here. I think most simply in manifesting God's name, Jesus is claiming that he has manifested the whole of the person and the character and the ways of God. The name of God stands in for and summarizes God's essential nature. It's hard to really distinguish between the glory in verse 4 and the name in verse 6, I think. The name of God sums up the whole of who he is. And so Jesus manifests to us all that we need to know about the God who we find life in knowing. And so quite simply, God's people know God. A Christian is one who knows God. God, because he has been chosen by God and given by God to Christ to see and believe and live, to know and be known. Do you know God? That's what we were made for. This is life. This is where you will find joy. This is how you can face those afflictions and difficulties of this life, knowing God. Do you know God? Has his name been manifested to you by the power of the Holy Spirit through the living and active word? Is, is God, is Christ, is, is he real to you? And for so long, Jesus was little more than an idea to me. It was this kind of nice, abstract concept that I liked. I didn't want to go to hell. No one wants to go to hell. So there's this thing. That sounds like a good idea. All right, great. But he but wasn't real. To me. But he's, he's a person, and he can be known, and he can be loved, and you can be known and loved by him, by grace, through faith. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not, go, it's not to go to church. It's not to do certain things. It's not to claim to believe certain things about Jesus. It's not to be baptized. It's not to be a member of a church. On and on and on. There's all these things that we try to pile up and say, look, I'm a Christian, this. No, to be a Christian is to know God. Entirely by the grace of God. It is to have Christ at the very center of your life. Your your thoughts, your loves, your words, your deeds. Sin is the moving of that which is central out to the periphery. And salvation is the moving of that which we have made uh, the periphery back to the center. This is what Christ has come to do for those who are his. And so you can know that you are his if you know and love him and the father. If you increasingly have an interest in him, an increased desire for him, a desire to be among his people, a desire to hear from his word, a desire to speak to him in prayer, a desire to increasingly live the whole of your life in reference to him because you are starting to understand that he really is life. And that all of those other things that you've tried to find your life and your happiness and just can't cut it, because reality is about him. He's at the center of reality. And so your life starts to become more and more all about him. And that's good. And you're increasingly glad because of that and, and content in him. And don't hear me wrong. We don't, we don't do that perfectly. I'm still stumbling and, and struggling. I can quickly forget and get frustrated, I can uh, allow... I was just thinking... Sorry, off the comment. Re- Rebecca's trying to fix my posture, and she's got me sitting up straight because I have bad posture. And so I was trying to do it, and then I realized just how quickly and naturally like it just falls back in, and I just collapse, and I have to intentionally and actively think about my posture. It's, it's, similarly, it's similar here. I can quickly... Oh, the affliction comes. I focus on the affliction. I forget the things. Christ, sinner, moves to the periphery, and here I'm at the center, and here's the anger, and here's the frustration, and here's the these things and it's only the grace of god and counsel and the word and prayer that brings that central thing back to the center and starts to put everything back in perspective and reorient my heart and my mind don't hear me saying we do this uh perfectly but the trajectory of the christian's life is increasingly christward and increasingly oriented around him as the center of of everything Not just of your Sunday morning religious life, but of the whole of your recreational life, your work life, your relational life, your everything. Knowing God is eternal life. And so God's people obviously know God and desire to know him more and more. And that then sets God's people apart from everyone else. Which means point number three. God's people are not of this world. We're going to do this one in detail next week because I think it's so important. Repetition again. We need to see and hear this. I really want you to be thinking specifically about this in preparation for next week in verse 9. I have lived this. I lived 20 some years of my life professing Christ while looking and living and loving exactly like the world. I have people whom I love dearly that seem to be looking and living and loving exactly like World, but scripture is painfully clear. You cannot look like the world and know Christ, you cannot live like the world and know Christ, you cannot love like the world and know Christ. And look at how much Christ emphasizes this. Verse 6 again, he is talking specifically about the people the Father gave him out of the world. Verse 9 again, I am praying for them, I am not praying for the world. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Look at verse 16. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Last one, look at 25. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know you that you have sent me. And Jesus wants to impress this truth upon us. God's people are not of this world. They do not belong to this world. And remember, world, as John uses it, refers not to the created world, the natural world. No, that's good, and you, you need that. The world that is big and beautiful and declares the glory of God and makes him known. But world in John is the world of man. The world system set up in opposition to the God who made us. This is the fundamental distinction and divide that runs through the whole of Scripture. Starting in chapter 3 of the Bible. It's the righteous and the wicked in the Psalms. It's God's people and not God's people. It's not of the world and of the world. There are two peoples and there are only two peoples. There are two identities. And the only two identities that matter. We are an identity-obsessed culture. We should be an identity-obsessed church. And it should be these two identities. Because these are the two that matter. This is the fundamental distinction. And this makes this the fundamental question. Are you of the world? Or are you not of the world? It's one or the other. Romans twelve two: Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of the world of your mind. James four four. These next two verses are parenting verses that I use regularly as I am raising my daughters and thinking about them and how we're going to do life. James four four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. First John two fifteen through seventeen. This is the same John, and he's explaining what Jesus is doing here. 1 John two fifteen: do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Sounds pretty serious. Love the world equals hate God. Friend of the world equals enemy of God. We're going to give this great detail next week. But but what does that mean then, to to love the world and to be of the world? Well, most simply, it is life lived apart from and without reference to God. That's all that it is. It's living this life without reference to God. It's living this life apart from, from him, It's not so much about the specific actions, but it's about a fundamental attitude and orientation. It is, it is seeking to live in God's world and enjoy God's world while wanting nothing to do with God. Another way that the scriptures refer uh, to these two categories of people is, is the wise and the fool. What is it that characterizes the fool? Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then he lives his life accordingly, as if the fool himself was God, because he was trying to believe that there is no God. This is what it means to be of the world. And this is why God is so gracious to save us from the world, because to live as if there is no God, the God who is life is only death. And so God gives us to his son, he gives him his work to do to give us eternal life by making God known to us and by dying for us that we might live. And this separates us from and sets us apart from the world. And this necessarily means that there will be many ways in which we are not like the world. And the tragedy is that there are so many professing Christians that are so like the world. And many have to be demonstrating that they are not like Christ and thus cannot know God. And so there are many professing Christians who think they know God, but sadly do not. Just like I did for a very long time. That is why Christ is kind, to be clear here. God's people are not of this world. And that means that there will be many ways in which they will not look like and live like and love like this world. More on that next week. But to be clear, does that that make us arrogant? Does that make us proud? Does that lead us to hate the people of the world and look down on the people of the world and, and distance ourselves from the people of the world? Absolutely not. Look at verse 15. Just real quick. We'll get to this in great detail. But look at verse 15. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep, keep, keep. That's the main petition In this prayer. Now look at verse 18. Here it is. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why? To take the gospel to the world, to speak and spread the good news that is the only hope for the world and for the dead sinners of that world, to call more and more people out of the world and to Christ, out of death and into life. We, of all people, should be the most kind and compassionate and concerned for the souls of those around us. As Pastor Mike so helpfully pointed out last week from the verses that follow 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul goes on to say that he seeks to give offense to no one, and he tries to please everyone in everything that he does, not seeking Paul's own advantage, but the advantage of many that they may be saved. And then Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, God's people are not of this world. And then as they increasingly understand and appreciate the grace of God that saved them out of that world, they desire more and more to go into that world for more and more people to to hear and to know and to be saved and to live. So God's people are not of this world. And then point number four God's people keep God's word. I'll be brief here. We're going to get some heavy focus on the word in the coming weeks. I want to draw your attention to one thing as we close, and we'll come back to verses 7 or 8 next week. Jesus says at the end of verse 6, notice it. Talking about the disciples. And he says this. It's kind of funny. He says, and they have kept your word. I want you to see the kindness of that. Word, I want you to take comfort as we close in that word. He's talking about the disciples, the ones who for three years have misunderstood him, who have just been questioning and challenging him, who are moments away from abandoning him. And Jesus says, they have kept your word. He says in verse eight, they have received the words and believed. Theirs was a weak and little Faith. Mine is often a weak and little faith. And yet that weak faith can lay hold of the strong Christ. And that strong Christ is also the compassionate Christ who sees us and knows us in all our littleness and weakness and still loves us. I left for vacation with do whatever you do, uh, do all to the glory of God. I, I left with that on my lips and on my mind. And oh, how I struggled to do that. Uh, these last couple of weeks as as things fell apart. But do you know what I came back to again and again and again? Even on vacation, it's impossible not to have an upcoming sermon in the back of the brain. I don't know what to do about that or or how to do it. But I I was so glad that this was that upcoming sermon because I was finally struck by and comforted by the most basic fact of this text. And that fact is that Christ prays for us. He prays for me. He prays for you. He prays for the disciples, knowing that they're about, what they're about to do. He still prays for them and says they've kept his word. Perfect in knowledge, he prays for me, knowing my frustration and discouragement, he prays for me, and knowing your whatever it is, he prays for you. Hey, what comfort there is to be found there. He knows us, and he loves us. And so he seeks our good. And so he prays for us, commending us into the hands of the Father, asking the Father himself to to keep us, to sanctify us, to fill us with joy. And that fact, when I can remember it and realize it, does. By the grace of God. Fill me with just a little bit of joy as I'm able to better understand God's grace and rest in his love for weak, little, sinful me. And it's that fact that makes me want to keep his word because I am seeing that how good he is and how kind and compassionate he is and how any word that he has to me and for me must be good and for my good. And so then as the afflictions come and they will continue to come for you and for me, I am comforted the more I can understand what a Christian really is and who I really am in Christ, given by the grace of God to the Son of God, to know God, to be saved out of the world of death, to be enabled to increasingly keep his good word. I am a child of God. That's everything. I have an inheritance that is imperishable, uncorrupted, and unfading. And in this, I rejoice. In this, I find perspective to help me face whatever comes. Do you understand and appreciate who you are and what you have in Christ? Do you know what it is and and how to go about taking that truth and then taking the afflictions and then bringing this to bear on those things and facing those things in light of this central and chief and main thing? Apply God's grace. Apply your gracious identity in Christ to everything. Don't do what the fool does and what we are so prone to quickly do and live like the world and and live and face our afflictions without reference to and apart from God. Do live and face those afflictions and the whole of your life in light of who you are in Jesus Christ. Bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, as we prayed at the beginning, we pray again at the end. We ask that you would help us. We echo Christ's prayer that you would keep us. Keep us from the evil one. Keep us from the world. Keep us from the sin that remains in our own hearts. Father, I know that my problems are rooted first and foremost in my own sin and my response to the things around me. Father, I do know that my desire is to more and more arrest and who I am in Christ and respond to whatever it is that comes with, with grace and with compassion and, and with kindness. Father, we are so forgetful and so prone um, to, to quickly lay aside everything that we profess to be the main thing and the most central thing about life and about, about who we are. We ask that You would help us, Lord. Help us to remember and to believe. Father, overwhelm us with your grace, with how big and all consuming and comprehensive that grace is. Father, help us to feel the great weight of our sin and and what it is and what it deserved, and use that to lead us to Christ and to his great love and grace and compassion for us. Father, fill us with joy. Father, the Christian life is to be a life facing all the hard things and the difficulties but a life of calm, contentment, and joy because of Jesus Christ and because of his grace. So, Father, please help us to do that. Um, Father, whatever it is that the many people in this room individually need, we ask that you would do that um, now. We ask that you would be comfort and encouragement. We ask that you would bring rebuke and correction. Father, we ask especially for those in here who do not know you. We ask that you would bring salvation, Lord, Pray that your word would work through the power of your spirit, to open eyes and to move uh, dead hearts to life, to lead people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Father, please do for the things that we cannot do for ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.